Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to open them up to the letter to the Colossians. So this is written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in Colossae, and I'm going to read, you'll, you'll keep flipping just a page or so into chapter 3. And I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 17. And as I do that, I'm going to invite you, once you get there, if you would go ahead and stand up if you're able. And if you're willing, go ahead and stand with us as we read God's Word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, please be with us. And as we hear this word, God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you will break through, that we may have eyes to see Remove the cataracts of uh, familiarity, the, the haziness of uh, uh, words that we may have read over and over. Renew in us a vigor and a spiritual vitality by the power of your spirit, we ask, to receive your word, to live your word, to turn to it, transform our lives by it. And by the power of your spirit, we ask. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
Aristotle, uh, when he was recording the trial of Socrates, uh, there is this famous line that he includes in, uh, and he puts on the lips of Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, in some translation or another, uh, and you don't have to fully agree with that statement, I don't, but I do like what Socrates was getting at, which is in the context of his trial, as he reflected on matters of life and death, and as he thought through what it is that he did as someone who asked questions, this question of who are you is one that must go deep into our core, not something that we can just carry around loosely and superficially. It's something that we have to dig into. So Socrates thought, and so he taught. And uh, retreats can be an amazing time to dig like Socrates. Uh, it, it, it can be a time for us to move beyond the natural ways in which we may answer the question, who are you? which is with our name uh, or with our major or with uh, where we live or what we do, um, the superficial levels. Uh, who are you? Oh, I'm Joel. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. Thanks. How are you? What's your name? And, and we usually stop there. And so the amazing thing about retreats, and I'm so glad that you've given up some time and energy to be here, is that you just get to attempt to explore that question, who are you, at a deeper level. And this weekend, through conversations and through getting to know people, you begin to push through that. You learn not only people's names and where they live and what they do, but you learn more about their story and what shaped them. You talk to professionals who are navigating with what it means to make their mark in the metro D.C. area and all that comes with that. You may talk to college students who are trying to figure out what in the world am I doing and what does the next chapter look like as I transition into adulting. Uh, you may talk to uh, people who are parents and uh, no matter what stage the, of, of life that their kids are in, they're asking the question, am I still sane and how do I keep going with this and am I doing it right? You begin to talk to people who have experienced real hurt and real pain, uh, real trauma at various points in their lives. And when they slow down enough to reflect on it, they really wonder, is there healing for me? Now, when you start to get to those questions as a community, now you're really digging in to find the answer, who are you? And in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and here in chapter 3, he's trying to push everyone the members and hearers of the Church of Colossae, and you here this morning to go just a bit deeper to answer in an ultimate sense, who are you? In a way that begins to ripple and have overflow effects to all of the other levels. For Paul, that is one of the most fundamental questions that you face in life. And I would encourage you as we reflect on Colossians chapter 3 this morning, and as I take this on in three points, to know yourselves, to be yourselves, and to share yourselves, I would encourage you to think through, who am I? Who has God called me to be? What does that, at its deepest, most fundamental level, look like? So Paul picks up in chapter 3 in verses 1 through 4, and he is 
in a sense, after some of the personal remarks in the opening of the letter and then into some of the challenges that that church specifically faced, it's almost in these first four verses as he's calling them back to this reality to know yourselves. Remember who you are now. And so in verses one through four, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We talked earlier this weekend about uh, being united to Christ. This idea that at your deepest, most fundamental level, when you have joined to Christ in faith, you've been united together with him, then at the deepest level of knowing yourselves, it means your life and death and all of who you are is wrapped up in Christ. And I love how Rick just earlier in the service mentioned that there are aspects and elements of that that are truly mysterious. And yet for Paul, when he thinks through the examination of the life of a Christian, it's something that you can never get away from. You can't promote yourself out of the reality of a life and death united to Jesus and secure in him. You can't uh, be so wildly successful in life or struggle so deeply with the realities of a sinful world with a difficult family of origin, with uh, the challenges that we face in everyday life, that you can somehow separate yourself from that fundamental reality. And so there's this sense that in the first century world, when news of Jesus had started to spread across the countryside, remember, the two lanes begin to multiply to express lanes and local lanes to eight lanes and beyond in different directions, that as the news of Christ, death, and resurrection goes out, that people had been looking for a way out from the oppression that they felt from foreign rulers, from the temples of idolatry that they had to pass week in and week out, they're t- tired of that. And in their minds, the end of history was marked by God returning and doing business with that, bringing justice for evildoers and redemption for those who had been oppressed, that he would lift them up and bring about the full covering of his justice, the new heavens and the new earth and all that that meant from the prophet Isaiah would become real to the people at the end of the age. And as one New Testament scholar put it, what Paul is doing here in Colossians is that he's helping reorient you and I this morning to this reality that what everyone in the first century was looking to happen at the end of history, because of Christ's death and resurrection, it's as if God had moved that and dropped it into the middle of history, redefining all that would come after it. That's what Paul means. That's what's so significant for us as Christians when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because this idea that our sin is now dealt with in him and in his death, we share in that in some mysterious way, is what people thought would happen at the end of time, now being dropped in the middle of their lives and continuing for you and I today. So at the most fundamental level, now that God has acted in redemption, when we think most fundamentally who am I? And we try to know ourselves as Christians at the rock bottom level, the foundation, the fundamentals. It involves our union with Christ. 
Now, Paul, in verse 5, and then moving really through verse 14, says, Now, if that's true, and you permit yourself to examine down to that level, that's going to change everything above it. Okay? So, so basically, Paul says, you can't know yourself at this level and then think everything else stays the same. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, once you know that, then it is a process of growth of hardship, of uh, what we would call in theological terms sanctification, is the process of that beginning to work out and transform our lives in all sets of new ways. And, and that's what he takes up. So he almost gives us two sets of vice lists uh, and uh, then a set of virtues. And in doing that, what he's doing is navigating this reality of how we put off the old ways in light of who we now are, and put on the new ways. Now, I want to make a couple of quick notes here. When it comes to vice lists in the New Testament, we often try to skim through those things as fast as we can. Who in the world wants to talk about vices? You are looking, uh, you're looking for the quickest and most expeditious way to say, ah, that's not me. Uh, Next, Uh, no, next. Uh, It's as if when you're filling out one of those forms at the doctor and you're there just because you need a quick antibiotic for something, and then they want to ask all your extensive health history, and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. Can I just get in? Can I get my antibiotic? Well, there's a danger for us when we approach things in the New Testament like viceless that we view that as a diagnostic that we want nothing to do with, right? And, and so the first warning that I would give you is when we go through vice lists like this and we talk about real things, it should be impossible for you to escape the scope of it uh, and you shouldn't want to. If you're maturing as a Christian, it means doing business with this stuff. The second thing that I want to note here is Paul talks about sexual immorality, as he talks about idolatry and coveting. He talks quite a bit about speech ethics as he flips and he talks about what it looks like for forgiveness and love and kindness. What I want you to note and what we often fail to do is appreciate how deeply corporate these things are. There can be a danger in America in the 21st century, to think about piety as highly individual. How's my life with Jesus? How am I doing with my spiritual maturity and development? How's my quiet time? What what do I personally feel with the Lord? And I I don't want to say that those things are bad, but in and of themselves, they are insufficient. And you're being cued into that as Paul unpacks in verses 5 all the way down to 15. You're being cued into that reality uh, because he's saying this is the way in which you as a community interact with one another. So I was raised in this area, uh, but when I went to Texas, and my kids still kind of elbow me about this a little bit, I picked up y'all, uh, because y'all is just such a Texas thing that it's just hard to escape. Uh, I mean, it just like starts to bleed into your vocabulary. Uh, the benefit of y'all is it is this, uh, it's this use of the plural where the yous uh, get transformed to the y'alls. It's, it's us all. And when Paul is writing about the yous in this putting off and putting on, there, you, you, you should go Texan here in your exegesis and see y'all. Uh, this is us. This is how we interact. This is how we engage with one another. And so what that means is uh, for us to not only know ourselves, but to be ourselves, we need to be in community. We need to be willing to do the fundamental work 
of loving one another. Remember from earlier, that doesn't mean avoiding conflict or never talking about hard stuff and only keeping it about a superficial level. That's easy, but you're never going to get at the putting off and putting on if you're unwilling to be truly known. The 21st century has a variety of ways you carry around in your pocket a supercomputer connected to the internet that anytime you think for a minute, I'm lonely, I'm isolated, or I don't want to really be known, you can pull that out and distract yourself away. And, and that's part of the downside. So is the internet helpful? Yes. I'm not, uh, I'm not a neo-Luddite. I want to encourage you if you want to talk to me more after, like I'm generally. But I, I think as Christians in the 21st century, we have to be careful not to take all technology uh, uh, as if it must be good um, or as if it must be good for us. Because I think one of the biggest barriers to putting off and putting on uh, everything from the ability to distract ourselves with the next thing to stream to viewing online pornography is that we wrestle with how accessible and available and isolating these things are and what that does to our community. And so uh, I, I don't say that to make any of you feel bad, but just to highlight what it looks like to really wrestle with uh, not only knowing ourselves, but being ourselves is first living in community. So you're doing a great job because you're on a retreat. So boom, check mark. You guys are applying that. Well done. If you're online, we wish you were here uh, maybe next year. Uh, and think about the ways in which you're truly known. If, if you're a middle-aged man here, do you really have friends? Do you have one friend? Do you have someone who truly knows you beyond what you do and maybe a hobby of yours? Think what it would be like to pursue that. That will help you in truly putting on and taking off and truly not only knowing yourself, but being yourself. Okay, there is a movie that I like. Uh, it's called Shawshank Redemption. And uh, if you've never seen it, that's fine. And if you want to see it, this isn't going to be a major spoiler. You'll be okay. Um, but Morgan Freeman uh, plays a character in the movie. And uh, his, he goes by Red. His character name is Ellis Redding. And he is uh, paroled. And as he's navigating this life after decades in prison, he gets a job in a grocery store. And he's reflecting on that as narrator. And Morgan Freeman as narrator is incredible. And he's reflecting on this reality. And he has to go use the bathroom. And he goes and he asks his uh, manager for permission to go to the bathroom. And the manager kind of looks at him like he's crazy. And he's like, you don't have to ask me for permission uh, to go and use the facilities, right? Just go. And uh, he is reflecting on that in the movie of the effects and reality of living your life one way for him institutionalized where you didn't have that sort of freedom, where all of a sudden you have this new freedom, but things don't just switch right away. It's not as if all of a sudden everything just goes back. And I find that incredibly helpful for what sanctification is like. Because when we think about putting off or putting on, we can think of it as an all or nothing thing, or we can think of it as an always up and to the right, as I was taught earlier uh, this, this weekend. Thank you for all of you science folks here. Um, what, what it gets at is when we uh, are come into contact with knowing ourselves and we begin to try to be ourselves as Christians, we have all sorts of stuff. And, and so it just doesn't flip automatically. Now, I'm going to guess for most of us, that's not a pattern of institutionalization, but it doesn't mean that it's not a pattern of unhealthy relationships. 
It doesn't mean that it's not a terrible definition of what real love is. It, it doesn't mean that it, it's, it's not harsh words or expectations that your family has dumped on you and said, this is normal and this is what it means to live a successful and fulfilled life no matter what. Those things in knowing yourself don't automatically and easily just drop off as if you haven't lived life like that for decades. And so I want to say that as a word of encouragement to you. If you're new to Christianity and you find this pretty daunting, I just want you to know ultimately and at the fundamental level, your life is secured in Christ and that's your hope. Now, if you're more mature and you've been fighting this battle and you say, why can't I get rid of some of the vices on this list? Why, no matter what, no matter what program or book I read, no matter what podcast I listen to, am I still so angry? I want you to be encouraged and not lose hope. Your life is secured in Christ. And so what it looks like to know yourself and to be yourself is to never lose sight of that and to keep working through it. Finally, in the last three verses here, uh, share yourselves. In 15 through 17, after these real corporate expressions of the viceless and the virtues, the things that as a community we should be working through together, Paul really begins to get at, hey, let me give you a sense positively of how that will express itself. And it, it involves sharing our lives with one another and with others. He writes, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Again, corporate view there, right? And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One of the things that I have picked up on is that uh, this is an incredibly gifted and talented group of people. Uh, and, and in your own different ways, right? So not everyone here is the same. Uh, those talents come from different places and spots. It gets expressed in different ways. If you were at the talent show last night, then you got to share in some of those talents. Uh, but here, what Paul is pointing to is when you know yourselves and you begin through the process of sanctification uh, to be yourselves in community, that that uh, wells up a sense of love and a sense of joy and a sense of thankfulness that affects one another and, and, and gets expressed. So much like uh, when uh, you have the opportunity like at the talent show, to uh, sing uh, together, to uh, clap together, to as a community uh, just appreciate some of the gifts that some of our musicians have. Think of that as just one facet of the sharing your lives with joy and thankfulness for who we are. So it's not merely through a talent show that this gets expressed. It's through corporate worship. When we share with one another, all those elements are basically here, right? And it's not merely in corporate worship. It would also be in your neighborhoods, in the parties that you throw or the events that you go to or uh, the settings that you participate in. It's even in your workplaces. It's even, and I know this can be scary for some of you, in your commutes that uh, the thankfulness and joy and love that you have experienced can uh, be redeemed in 
in Christ even when you're out on the road. And I know some of you are like, mm, I don't know, you, I, I was with you, Joel, until you got to the whole commute thing. I understand. I can relate. But I think that's the totality of what he's expressing in verse 17 when he basically is pushing the full community to say, well, what does this look like for me? So once I work through at a fundamental level, at a most foundational level, who I am, once I begin to walk forward with being who I am, then how can I share who I am? Some years ago in the Atlantic Monthly, there was an article by Eleanor Smith, and I thought it was incredible. She was sharing the work of a Canadian epidemiologist, and and I don't read all the time about Canadian epidemiologists, just so you know, but I found this particular article really helpful. Uh, So uh, this epidemiologist was in Cambodia. And in the area where he was working, uh, because of the typical diet that people would eat, uh, there was an anemia that affected disproportionately women and children. And this had all sorts of effects on the infant mortality rate and on a number of other things. And he thought, I wonder if there's ways uh, it's difficult for people to get a hold of the proteins that would correct that anemia. Are there other ways to try to solve this? And this is what he spent his work doing uh, as part of his Ph.D. and beyond. And he uh, theorized at the time, what if I take a chunk of iron, which uh, for me would not be hard to get a hold of, and I gave it to them, and with the soups that they tend to make or broths that they tend to make or stews, if they drop the chunk of iron in, I wonder if the iron would leach out in a way that could have a clinical effect positively on their anemia. And so he theorized and, and got put together some chunks of iron and started handing it out to all of the women in the village who often uh, did the cooking and said, hey, use this. I think this is going to help you. And then he came back in a month and he wanted to see how it was going and to do checks. And all of the chunks of iron had been put to use, but none of them in the stews. Uh, They were put to use as like doorstops and as tools and as a variety of things. But the diet hadn't been impacted because no one was willing to put a chunk of iron into their stew. And so he thought, okay, uh, this is a problem. I can't really test my theory if no one's willing to do this. And he came up, and I think this is the genius part of the article that made me interested in reading about a Canadian epidemiologist. He came up with the idea of in this region there was a fish called the trichantrop. And everyone, in a sense, thought well of the trichantrop. It it was a sign of life and vitality, and in some sense, maybe to put it colloquially, good luck. And he thought, I wonder, I wonder, what if I made an iron trichantrop? And then I passed that out. Would they be willing to put that in their stew and cook with it? And so he tried, and they did. And what he began to see and what he subsequently published a number of papers on is that it impacted positively. It, in a sense, resolved and connected with the anemia in their lives. And when Eleanor Smith is writing this article, what I found really helpful is at the end, she said, you know, the amazing thing of what what he did here is that uh, it didn't have to be the trichantrop. It could have been anything that people would have understood and put to use in their lives. That the fundamental material, the iron, is necessary. You can't get away from that. And that's what's needed to address the fundamental problem of anemia. But the shape of the iron, the the shape of that element in the various circumstances and contexts which you may use it could be changed and adapted in all sorts of ways. And I thought, this is incredible. Here's why. As Christians in the 21st century, we are called to meet a much deeper problem 
once we know ourselves and once we start being ourselves, when it comes to sharing ourselves with our community, we're not just meeting a low-level anemia, we're meeting spiritual death. And the one solution for spiritual death from a Christian perspective is faith in Jesus Christ. The grace of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the hope for the world. And so as we begin to mobilize the the one solution, the one hope for this deep problem of spiritual death, when we think about how do we make that known and share ourselves with the communities around us, let me tell you, we can try a block of iron. And if in trying the block of iron and sharing our lives, we find in our communities that uh, no one really has any use for that, they don't know and it doesn't make sense to them, then a really important question for us as Christians come up, which is what shape can we bring the hope and cure for spiritual death to bear on the lives of the people around us. And that involves knowing them, and it involves engaging them, and it involves thinking through and putting some thought to this. And it presents a church with two options. You can just keep trying the block of iron and say, well, I hope this pays off at some time. Or you begin to say, what are the ways in which we can share our lives, in which all of what we can do and are can be shared with the people around us. And I think that's the push here. Here in Colossians 3, the expression of songs and hymns, uh, a a variety of ways of just expressing yourself artistically. Now imagine that uh, to every specialty, gift, and grace, and expertise that's in this room. That's what it looks like. Now I want to make one quick and important note. Why that illustration works is because the iron is the iron is the iron. It's unchanged. We never change the content or solution that God has given us in Scripture for redemption and hope for his people. The resurrected Christ is the Christian hope. There's never getting away from that. We attempt to or think about it to our peril. Yet, how we take the solution of Christ to people should be shaped by and impacted, affected, thought and prayer given to, is this understandable? Can they hear us? Is this at use? That, that's what it looks like for us to be Christians, living in a Christian community, and then taking not only who we are and knowing that, not only uh, what God has commanded us to be, so being ourselves, but fully and fundamentally sharing our lives with the people around us. That's what Paul is calling not only the church in Colossae to do in their Greco-Roman context as they face the challenges of their day, but it's what he's calling the women, men, and children of CRPC to do in Laurel. It's what he's calling all Christians in all times and ages and places to do until Christ returns. And so my hope and prayer from you as you leave from this retreat after this morning of worship that not only will you drive safely, not only when you hit 270 if you're going that way and it opens up, you think, man, that illustration from Friday night. Ask somebody if you don't know what I'm talking about. And then that as you head home, you think, what does it look like for me to share the hope of Jesus with the people uh, around me? What does that look like to uh, engage people at their most fundamental need with a heart and desire that Christ may be displayed. That's what it looks like to live as a Christian. Let me pray. 
God, I ask that you will watch over us, encourage us, strengthen us. And as we have the privilege to worship you freely here this morning, together, through song, through the table here in a moment, through the sharing and fellowship of our lives, through the confession of our sin and the ways in which we still struggle, through the hope that we look to you in Jesus. Help us, I pray, to love you with all of who we are and to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons why uh, I think it is uh, an encouragement to you as a Christian to celebrate the Lord's table regularly is that mystery that we talked about in our union with Christ is the same mystery that connects us to the table. Because as Christians, we don't think, well, and maybe here I could say more specifically from our vantage point, when we come to the table, It's not just a mere looking back to what Christ has done, although that's part of it. It's not only that. There is a looking forward to the new heavens and new earth where we will sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb and and redeemed resurrection bodies eat and drink with the resurrected Savior again. When we eat here, it's like the appetizer for that full meal. Scripture says that when we come to the table in faith as a community, that is when we come together looking to Christ in our union with him, God, in a mysterious way, by the power of his spirit, meets with us in a real way. So that when you come in faith, you should come hopeful with your face looking up, even with a bit of joy, that you have been united to Jesus and that God has promised through the power of his spirit when you come to nourish your souls here and now until the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what we mean when we come to the Lord's table for communion together. It's a communing with one another, true, but it's a communing with Christ himself because of the work of Jesus and our being united 